Good afternoon, everyone. It's about that time. Let's go ahead and get started. You guys keep eating. I know lunch came out a little late today, but it was pretty good. Worth the wait. We're picking back up. Last week we looked at Deuteronomy 17, and we saw God's view of um, justice and also his view of kingship and, and leadership and monarchy and what God looked for in a leader and told the people to look for in their future leaders. And we see how through, or we will see later, if you read through the Old Testament, how pretty much every king fell not just a little short of that ideal, but almost the complete opposite of that ideal. And Israel throughout its history in the Old Testament longed for a king that would embody the things that God set forth in Deuteronomy 17. And, and it doesn't happen until the New Testament when we meet that king. Um, but that's a long way away. So now we're in <clears throat> chapter 18 and the section continues because it's talked about judges and law courts and king, a uh, future monarch if Israel goes that route. And God gives them a choice. They don't have to take a king, but He gives them, if you do, this is what you need to look for. Now He's going to go and focus on their religious. So moving from the civil domain to the religious domain. Of course, there's no difference in Israel between those two as there is today in our minds, but uh, Israel was a theocracy, so it was all one aspect that would be controlled. And so now we're at chapter 18, and God's going to talk about the, the, the priesthood. And he's, again, Deuteronomy, he's recapping a little bit of what's already been said in Leviticus and Numbers and in Exodus, but he's not giving it again. They already have the book of the covenant. He's preaching it to them. He's reminding them. So the little bits that are mentioned in Deuteronomy are expanded on or have been expanded on already in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in various places. Deuteronomy is just sort of the uh, recapping it for this next generation that were only kids, some of them not even born, when the original stipulations were given to their parents. And so now he says in chapter 18, the priests, the Levites, and all of the tribe of Levi are to have no portion or allotment uh, or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the offerings made to the Lord by fire, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as He promised them. So God, we've already seen this in Leviticus. Um, God promised that the Levites... All the tribes of Israel would have land, they would have crops, they would have inheritance, they would, they would have their tribal portions except the Levites. The Levites' portion was they were to serve the Lord in the temple and in the cities of refuge and the Levitical cities throughout the land where they were to teach the law, where they were to oversee the religious education and the covenant education of Israel. And so because of that, they were called to a special uh, office. Now, in other ancient Near East cultures, this is what's crazy. In other ancient Near East cultures, Egypt and Babylon and Mesopotamia, the priests were the highest caste. They were the highest segment of society. And so, and so that means that they owned all of the land, that they owned the, cult, the temple, that they owned the fields, that they owned everything because they were at the high point of the ladder. But in Israel, the priests are not put in that position. They are taken out of the realm of ownership entirely. 
and they are separated. So you, you didn't get wealthy by becoming a priest. At least that's not what God intended. You didn't go into the priesthood just to accumulate vast tracts of land and buildings and edifices and museums and holdings and all of this stuff that somehow, on this side of history, we have seen churches do just that. But in Israel, under the covenant, that was never to be the case. The priests were not landowners. They were not uh, uh, lords over the peasants. They were none of it. In fact, they didn't even get any land. They had to rely on the people being faithful, bringing offerings to present to the Lord. That's how the priests got their food. That's how the Levites ate. So when God reminds His people, we saw a few chapters ago when God says, you know, take care of the alien among you, the stranger among you, the immigrant in your midst. He also said, and the priest and Levite in your midst. Because they were dependent, and God set it up so that they were dependent on the people's faithfulness to God to earn their living. And this is, has continued to varying degrees in the New Covenant. In fact, when Paul on two occasions... Paul will, will be talking about how the, the workers, the, 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 basically the elders, the ones who preach and teach, which is the equivalent of the Old Testament Levites, that if they are ministering the Gospel, then the people to whom they are ministering should provide for their physical needs so that they don't have to provide for their own physical needs and minister to the people. Paul two different times has distressed this. And when he does... In, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he appeals to this very concept. He says, Don't you know that those who serve at the altar get their living from the altar? And he's telling the, the Corinthians, Don't you know? God's always set it up so that the people who are doing ministry as a separate calling are to be provided for by God through the gifts that people bring to God. That's part of what your tithes and your offerings in the Old Testament went to. And it'll spell it out. It'll say, this is the share due to the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep. The shoulder, the jawbone, and the stomach. Now, what they did with those? Well, we know they ate the shoulder. Jawbone, some translations say jowls. Some, uh, and says inner parts instead of stomach. We don't know. We just know that they used all the animal. And so... Whatever they use that for, the priest, the point it's saying is the priest got a portion of the animal that was sacrificed, and that went to feed them and their family. That's how priests ate. You were to give them the first fruits of your grain, new wine and oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. So this is God setting it up how He will provide for His people. God's saying, I'm going to provide you enough so that if you trust Me and you bring in the first fruits, if you bring your sacrifices, if you live the way you're supposed to live, not only will you and your family's uh, portion be blessed, not only will your crops be blessed and your land and your animals and everything, but the people who I've set apart to minister to you, they will be provided for as well. They don't Now, this is not a license for them as we've said many, many times, but it's worth repeating because people all over the world continue to believe this lie. This is not bring the priest the best 
so that the priests can accumulate all that best and live as kings and, and have this lavish lifestyle. No. No, 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 no. The priests get a portion of the offering. They don't amass all of this wealth. Priests are not supposed to be living large. That is the direct opposite. I don't care what your preacher says. I don't care how much his suit costs or how big his ministry is. That's not anointed. That's greed, which is idolatry according to the Bible. So I'm very forceful against that doctrine. It's one of the few doctrines I will stand here at this ecumenical, interdenominational gathering Bible study we do, and I will give you different sides on different theological issues except the prosperity gospel because it is from hell. And you need to run from it whenever you see it. Yeah, exactly. I don't hold back on that one. Because it wrecks the lives of Christians around the world who live in poverty, who scrap and, and, and barely get by, and they see a preacher, hey, you want to live like me? Give me that tithe. Give me, sow your seed. Let me send you a prayer cloth or any other of this demonic garbage. And the people get poorer, and that wealthy church gets wealthier, and God vomits when He sees that. If you don't believe me, read his letter to the church at Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3. You'll see what makes God sick, and it's that. So again, am I forceful on it? Yes. Am I apologetic about that? Not at all. If you have a problem with that, I'm happy to talk to you about it. Uh, but just run from it. Flee it. Get away from it. Hold people accountable. So, instead of going into all that though, that, the true priesthood... Um, and God goes on to say, if a Levite moves from one of your towns anywhere in Israel where he's living and comes in all earnestness to the place the Lord will choose, which is where the sanctuary is going to be, he may minister in the name of the Lord as God like all his fellow Levites who serve there in the presence of the Lord. He's to share equally in their benefits even though he's received money from the sale of his family possessions. In other words, if somebody who's from the tribe of Levite wants to sell the little bit of possessions that they have, and to move, relocate to wherever the temple is or the tabernacle to work there, then God says, let him. Let him. That's okay. He's to be treated. So you Levites from all over could come and minister at the central sanctuary rather than remaining in the Levitical cities that God sets up throughout the region. Uh, and that's giving the Levites the ability to move and minister how they feel called, how they feel led which is what the text means when it says if he comes in earnest. It's, it's if, if he comes out of the desire of his heart. I believe how the Hebrew says it. So then, so God's talked about true priesthood, true ways uh, that he wants to relate to his people, and the true priest. Now he's going to turn and Moses is going to warn him about the faults. These are the anti-Levites. These are the anti-priests. These are the, the ones who you do not need to listen to. And in fact, God gives a stern warning. You'll be treated like them if you do. Verse 9, he says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Now, some examples. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. Top of the list. The number one way you are not to communicate by, to God or hear from God or try to curry favor from God is by sacrificing your child. Now we know that the nations did this. 2 Kings chapter 3, the king of Moab does this when he's pleading with the Moabite god, Chemosh, and wanting to, to secure his divine favor and turn back these encroaching armies that are going to attack him. He, he, he offers his firstborn child as a sacrifice and hangs him on the wall. I mean, this was a thing that was done. Places like Carthage and other places, they found remains of children's sacrifice. 
this is the kind of thing that God will judge nations for. And this is the kind of thing that God is telling Israel, do not even remotely practice this. Don't even come close. Don't have nothing to do with this. Because it's absolutely detestable. Again, God doesn't drive out Canaanites because they don't worship Him. Okay? God allows people outside the nation of Israel to not worship Him because Israel is going to be the one who reaches Him. He's, he's wanting the world to come to Him, not to destroy them. But when the world's evil gets twisted and, and, and degrades itself to the point where they are sacrificing living children in order to appease their concept of God, they have gone too far. And God will judge such a nation. And that's what He's doing with the Canaanites. There's other practices as well that were known throughout the Near East. So in order, other than child sacrifice, um, one who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who's a medium or spiritist who consults the dead. So these were ways the ancients believed there were things like... Um, like there's, I'll read you a quote. This is from a Mesopotamian omen. This is in an Akkadian uh, divination ritual. It says, If a snake crosses from the right of a man to the left of a man, he will have a good name. If a snake crosses from the left of a man to the right of the man, he will have a bad name. That's an omen. That's a, you know, like we say, if, if you see a black cat, bad luck. If you walk under a ladder, bad luck. If you break a mirror, bad luck. All that, we, we don't even believe that, hopefully. Um, it just kind of for some of us becomes almost like a little game or a tradition. But in the ancient world, they actually took this seriously. They believed these type of things because they had no reference for a relational God. The gods were a mystery. The gods were, were these, these capricious, faraway deities that controlled the world and took delight in, in um, doing their own thing. And if humans got in the way, eh, you know, humans were kind of like ants or cockroaches or whatever. And so the people would be like, let's appease the gods, let's appeal to the gods, or let's listen to how the gods may be speaking to us. So there were all kinds of ways they'd do it. They'd, they'd do it through uh, the, the reading of, of omens or portents. You know, put tea leaves in a water and see how they float around and you can kind of read something from that. Or cut open an animal, sacrifice it, cut open, examine its liver. And that becomes a way that you can tell the future. Uh, look at the stars, astrology, the way the planets are aligning. I mean, I still see, pe still see people on my Instagram feed doing this today. Like, I have friends that are like, oh, we're in this moon in the phase of Venus, and uh, that's why I'm having a bad... No, no, it's not. None of that is legit. None of it's real. And if you put your faith in that, then you're actually worshiping the creation rather than the Creator, and it's, it's futile. It leads you away from knowledge of God rather than what it's supposed to do, which is lead you to knowledge of God, looking at what's created and saying, like, this is incredible. I need to know the one who put this in place. But as Romans 1 tells us, and as the wisdom of Solomon had told the Jews before that, people are idol factories. We create idols. We, we create things to worship because if it's, if it's impersonal and it's understandable and it's manipulative then we feel better about it. The difference between magic and prophecy is very simple. Magic is performed. Prophecy is received. That's the difference. When all the miracles that the prophets do, those aren't tricks that they're performing. They have no power whatsoever. 
they're receiving and the Holy Spirit is coming upon them to do certain things, speak certain words, or, or enact certain miracles for the purpose of communicating. It's never a case of ma- magic is your ability to do something that gets the gods to do something or the universe to do something. That's completely different. Covenant faith is revealed and received. Not learned and, and, and gained skill at and achieved. That's why there are no biblical equivalents to the Akkadian divination rituals or the Egyptian dream interpretation books or any of these things that the other cultures, the Babylonian astrological charts. There's no biblical counterpart to those because all of those are attempts to manipulate the supernatural in order to find out something on the part of the person. And God's saying, no, you know how you're going to find out? Let me tell you. So he goes on to say, anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before your God. Literally in Hebrew it says you must be perfect before your God. The word is complete or whole or, 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 or lacking in nothing, living exactly what God has designed you to live. And that's what he's calling them to do. Not to go the route of the Canaanites who, who, who pine after and, and seek to manipulate and to control and to hear from these gods in ways that end up um, leading people directly astray from knowledge of God. And God's telling Israel, you will not do this. You will not do this. So then he says, all right, well, the natural question would be, so what then, how do we hear from God? How do we, you know, if we can't hear from the gods, if they're doing it wrong, how, how is it done right? And God says, verse 14, the nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see His great fire anymore or we will die. God said to me, what they say is good. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. So God says, do you want to know what you're going to have instead of the Canaanites with the sorcerers and the diviners and all of these necromancers? And all? No, you're going to have a prophet. There will be prophets. And this is, he says a prophet in the singular, and there's theological reason for that. But in the immediate context, he's talking about anyone, it's going to be anyone who's raised up like Moses. Anyone who has this gift of prophecy. And there will be many in the pages of the Old Testament, especially when the people are in their time of um, needing to hear from God the most. So there will be people like Samuel. There will be people like Elijah and Elisha. People that God raises up. And, and so Israel, that's how they're going to listen. God says you're going to hear through the voice of the prophet. Remember, God's telling Israel, hey, remember last time you heard my voice? It scared you to death. This is Exodus 19 and 20. And you actually fled and were terrified and said, we don't want to hear His voice. We don't want to see His image. It's too fearsome. It's too overwhelming. That's the kind of God they're in covenant with. And so God said, what they say is good. And so He spoke through Aaron and through Moses. And He will speak through other prophets that He raises up from among them. They don't have to do like King Balak did. Remember in last year in Numbers when Balak went up to Mesopotamia and hired Balaam the prophet to come down and say something to Israel and give him a word? 
they won't have to do that. They won't have to hire out these spiritual, you know, they don't have to go search for some yogi on top of a mountain or some spiritual guy with reputation of doing miracles. They won't have to do that because God will raise up from among them someone who's going to do for them what Moses has been doing for them. Remember, Moses is about to die. These are his last words. So he's comforting them. That's how you're going to hear from God. You're going to get, you're going to get prophets. And if you don't listen to that prophet, you will be rejecting God. There's no plan B. This is what King Saul didn't grasp. When Saul wanted to hear from God and God didn't reveal anything to him, what did he do? He went to Endor. He got this spiritualist, this, this, this necromancer, uses the same term that this is used in this section, to raise up, to call up the ghost of Samuel. And the funny thing is if you read that passage, it's, uh, it's 1 Samuel 28, she does it. She calls up the actual ghost of Samuel. And she's freaked out. And you get the, the sense that well, she's used to dealing with these spirits, whoever they are, but when the real thing shows up, she's terrified. And, and Samuel announces to God from the dead, hey, or to Saul from the dead, this is it. You, you, you're done. You've, I've told you. God told you. It's over. And so Saul dies in ignominy. And, and because of the, you know, seeking to find some other voice besides the prophetic voice that he had been given. And God's warning Israel not to do that. And so then he says, um, verse 20, But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. Why is it a capital offense? Because it's a violation of the very foundational concept of the covenant. Remember, the covenant is what Israel lives by. And covenant is different than like legal or, or, or law only. Covenant is a, is a full-orbed relationship with, with legal, with public, with social, with religious implications. Covenant Breaking the covenant is treason. And breaking the covenant by consulting or speaking in the name of other gods is high treason. And that is why, that is one of the very few, uh, there's only like six or seven things in the Old Testament that get you the death penalty. But speaking in the name of another God, or making something up and saying that it's from God, are two of the, the things that receive the death penalty. Why? Well, kind of like we saw in the last chapter lying witnesses, false witnesses, um, you know, people, you better be ready to pay with your life if you're going to witness against somebody against their life. It's the same thing with this. If you're going to presume to be a prophet, you better be ready to pay with your life if you're wrong. Because being a prophet was not, again, a thing that was esteemable. Just like the Levites and the priests, you didn't become a prophet to get rich. Ask any of the Old Testament prophets. Most of them were killed by Israelites. Jesus said it. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, you guys have killed the prophets every time God sent them to you. Read Jeremiah, not a popular guy. Ezekiel, not a popular guy. Right? Hosea, not a popular guy. Amos, some farmer sycamore tree grower from somewhere, from Bumpkinville, comes in and gives a prophecy. Elijah, from Tishbite, wherever that is, comes in, speaks, lives in the wilderness. Like These are people who were not... You didn't become a prophet to get status unless you were a false prophet. And unless you were in the royal court and you told the king what he wanted to hear and you said, oh, do, do what you will. 
And there were those. And they did tickle the ears of the kings and they did receive high status. And for every one of those, God would send somebody like a Micaiah who would come in and who would speak and say, no, all of these guys are lying to you, king. If you go into battle, uh, you're going to die. It's a really interesting story. Not Micah, Micaiah. A little known prophet, but his story is incredible. Uh, This is what God was saying. If you presume to speak in the name of God, you are taking on the name of God. So if you flippantly or deceitfully use the name of God, be prepared for the consequences. You should never want to be a prophet. You should never want to be a prophet. That prophecy is something that should be compelled. You should be compelled to be a prophet. A lot of modern prophetic ministries would do well to think on this very somberly. It's not something flippant. When you claim to speak on behalf of God, you are taking on an awesome and a fearful responsibility. I've told some of you this before, but growing up, every, my dad's a pastor, still preaching. Um, every Sunday, and this was like, I was 20 when he told me this, so it would have been for 25 years. Every Sunday before he'd preach, one of the things he would do on Sunday morning, go in the study, go in the bathroom and throw up. Because he would get so overwhelmed with the weight of what he was about to do. I'm about to go speak in the name of God to people. There's no more sobering responsibility than that. And, and it was, you know, and he, and he told me when I was in seminary thinking that I might be a pastor, I'm a teacher, theologian. He said, the advice he gave me, he said, son, if you can imagine yourself being fulfilled doing anything else but ministry, do that. Do not do ministry unless you cannot imagine yourself not doing ministry. And it stuck with me to this day. And it's, and it's absolutely true and it's perfectly in line with what we see in Scripture when God calls people. It's serious business. It's serious business. So, <clears throat> he goes on to say, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Well, here's a quick test. If what the prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that's a message the Lord has not spoken. Very clear. If the guy says, thus saith the Lord, and this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen, the Lord did not thus saith. Alright? Now, there is an exception, and God will talk about it later in the prophets, which is when it's a message of judgment, and the people repent, and God relents from that judgment, that does not mean that the word wasn't true. It means the people repented. So there is, you can't read this in isolation as a proof text. You have to read this with the backdrop of Ezekiel and others like that, who got, like Jonah. You know, Jonah's prophecy hey, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. What did the Ninevites do? They prayed, they fasted, they repented. God relented from that judgment. That's not giving a false prophecy, that's the people repenting. But anything else. God saying, well, that's one way you can tell that they didn't, I didn't send them, is if they say something that doesn't happen. And so, again, you can't boil this down to this statement only, because there are other things about... For instance, God said, hey, if a prophet says something and it does happen, that doesn't mean I sent him either. Because he could say, hey, this is going to happen. It happens. Now, let's go worship other gods. And God's like, you know that I did not send that prophet. So it's, it, you have to balance this. We saw that in Leviticus, uh, or in Numbers. You have to be able to balance that and ferret it all out. But what God's telling the people is, you're not going to be left to the whim of everybody saying, the Lord told me such and such. Be, be more discerning than that. Pay attention to that. Listen to the content of their message. Listen to how they give their message. Look at their lives, what they're calling you to do. 
All of these things come into play. But one of these examples is that somebody flat out says, the Lord is, brother, the Lord's going to bless you. He's got a ministry for you that's going to be amazing. And He's going to give you a car. And He's going to give you a house. He's going to do this and this and this. And none of it happens. You can kind of go, well, all right, well, God didn't tell you that. I mean, I've had so many things prophesied over me by people and just flat out didn't happen. Weren't even close to being right. Oh, God's telling me that you're dealing with this and He's going to do it. And I'm like, oh, okay, but no, I'm not dealing with that. And whatever told you that wasn't God. It was either your own imagination or something else, but it wasn't God. Um, and so there are ways we're not left uh, rudderless like the Canaanites seeking after, well, how can I hear from God? How can, let me cut this animal open and look at its intestines. Let me pour out this water and what pattern that it makes. Let me roll these dice and see what it... God's not left His people that way. And so He says, uh, if where the prophet proclaims the name of the Lord doesn't take place, that is the message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of Him. So he's giving his people in this section, he's going to go on in the next section to talk again about cities of refuge, which is how the book of Numbers ended. Leviticus and Numbers both touched on it. But he's, again, he's equipping his people, when you go into the land, know that I'm going to take care of you. From the crops, to the justice system, to the religious system, to everything. If, it's all conditional, if you live the way I'm telling you. That's the promise he's making. So, we are one minute over. You guys, have a great week. We'll see you next week. Um, tell a friend and let's continue to fill this room up. Thanks.